From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Another busy show ahead. We'll get right into it, though, and talking about legal aid. And more people in this province will soon have more access to legal aid services. And that includes a legal representation through a new family law clinic model. So what does this all mean, and who will be eligible for more legal aid services? Well, Raji Mangat joins me now, the executive director of West Coast Leaf. Raji, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on the program, Jill. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to come on today and talk a bit more about this. So when we're talking about legal aid, and specifically in this case, family law, family violence, how are people going to be getting more access? Yeah, so um, yeah, this is a big, a big change and a big shift in direction for how legal aid services are provided um, to people who are experiencing family violence. Um, A big sort of centerpiece is um, a multidisciplinary, intensive, trauma-informed family law clinic that will be developed later this year. And what's different about that is that uh, people will be able to access that clinic and have services from a lawyer, including representation in court, um, for kind of as long as the situation needs to be stabilized. Um, In the past, the way that legal aid has worked is that you get um, a contract for a legal aid lawyer and a set number of hours, and it's very one-size-fits-all. So, you know, it's the same number of hours for someone with this type of case, and it's the same number of hours for someone with these other types of issues or types of challenges that, um, that they have. And so it's really sort of trying to address the fact that we don't have, um, you know, everybody's circumstances are not the same. Many people are involved in intractable, um, long cases, highly complex, highly contentious, um, and they can't really navigate the system without a lawyer representing them, um, especially when it means facing an abuser in court on your own. Which makes a lot of sense. And if we look at the system, and and like you're saying, it, it has always kind of been this one size fits all. But have we also been dealing with with cutbacks and with even the amount of legal aid and family legal aid that has been available to people, and, and in a lot of cases, uh, women? Yes, absolutely. Um, the survivors of family violence in this province are still overwhelmingly women, um, and people with uh, childcare responsibilities remain overwhelmingly women. Um, and we know that women come out of the breakdown of a relationship um, often poorer and with less economic stability uh, than their male uh, ex-spouses. So it it definitely, there's a gendered component here. These changes will impact anybody who has experienced family violence and is eligible for legal aid services. Um, You know, I think the the piece around um, wanting to really be able to provide people with a level of service that's going to help really stabilize um, the situation really help them be able to um, protect themselves, protect their children, rebuild their lives. Um, that that's kind of what, what this clinic model is about. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we haven't been keeping pace with costs of living increases in terms of you know how much funding or how much. Um, 
resources are available for legal aid. Uh, but, but honestly, I mean, you can throw a lot of money at a problem, and if you're not doing the right things with it, you won't necessarily get the outcomes and results that you're looking for. So we're very pleased that the province um, and Legal Aid BC uh, have kind of come come together with the Centre for Family Equity, who is the plaintiff in this case, um, to really think differently about what people need in our province and how legal aid services can actually meet those needs instead of, um, you know, providing a bit of a patchwork of coverage that sort of feels a little arbitrary, starts here and there, you know, doesn't necessarily leave the person in a better place than when they started. My guest is Raji Mangat, Executive Director at West Coast Leaf. Raji, you mentioned the Centre for Family Equity, which used to be known by or as the Single Mothers Alliance. And there was the lawsuit that was launched, I believe it was, was 2017, taking, taking that fight for family law legal aid through the courts. Is it because of that lawsuit that we're seeing this today? Yeah, this the the announcement that was made um, earlier today by the Attorney General and Nikki Sharma is um, a settlement of those claims. So you know we're very grateful. We wouldn't be here today without the Center for Family Equity, um, as you said previously known as uh, Single Mothers Alliance, without their unwavering commitment to make sure that. Um, there was real meaningful systemic change on the ground that would help uh, people leaving violent relationships get the get the help they need to be safe um, and to be able to move on with their lives um, and have you know family well-being. We, we have seen recently, and I'm, I'm sure people have seen or heard this story in the news uh, out of Manitoba that is just an absolute heartbreaking uh, story uh, of the deaths of a 30-year-old woman, uh, several young children. When we see these stories or hear about these stories, is that also what we're talking about and talking about ways to to stop the violence, so ways to better protect people who are in those extremely vulnerable situations? Yes, absolutely. I mean, these these are not just court cases. These are often life or death situations for people. Um, and we, you know, the story out of Manitoba is indeed heartbreaking. And there are many stories like that in our province and across Canada. Um, and so really being able to equip um, people leaving violent relationships, um, you know, who are disproportionately single, single women or single mothers, um, to be able to have real choices. Like, I think that there's been, uh, it's, it's very challenging to have to get up every day and try to face um, someone who has exercised a lot of power and control over you in a court process. Um, and we know that sometimes the court process itself becomes weaponized and is used as another way to exercise control um, and power over someone. And so when that happens, you know, in, the pre- in a system where people receive, you know, X number of hours of services, we definitely hear about, um, you know, abusive ex-partners who basically kind of run down those hours so that the person will be left without representation and will either give up um, or just have to face um, constant 
continuing escalation of violence around every time there's a court hearing um, or any time something needs to change with the with the parenting time with the child. Um, so, so it's very much the same situation. It's very much about how we can respond to gender-based violence and family violence in our province and really equip people with a means to get remedies that will help them um, be safe. And do you think this will change the numbers? One of the statistics that I had seen as well seems uh, it just uh, is such a large number saying that three uh, in, in the past, it has been three out of every five applications for family law, legal aid representation were denied. Will this change that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, along with the clinic that I mentioned, um, even if you're not able to access the clinic, um, you will receive more hours of time and as well the eligibility criteria are changing. So in the past, um, people, including one of the individual plaintiffs that started this case with us, um, you know, were required to liquidate, um, you know, even a modest RRSP in order to be kind of poor enough or not have too many assets to be eligible. And so now some of the changes that are coming into force are that for six months after leaving um, an abusive partner, the assets won't be counted um, in determining financial eligibility. Um, as well, the uh, income thresholds are increasing. Um, and this is largely coming from uh, what we saw happen in the pandemic, where there was a greater need for people to seek out family law legal aid services um, because home was not safe. And um, that that uptick, I think, has really helped um, people see that there's, there's a real need in our province um, and that we're leaving way too many people behind and not giving them the level of service that they, they need and that they frankly deserve. When do you anticipate these changes will be fully in place? Well, some of the changes are going to start um, just as of April 1st, so not, not in too long a time. And those are the policy changes around the um, eligibility criteria. Um, in terms of the clinic now, that's going to take a bit more time. I think the anticipation is that we will be able to have that up and running by the end of this calendar year, um, because that's going to require, um, you know, hiring a bunch of people and, and doing some community consultations to make sure that the clinic is, you know, in located in communities that where it makes the most sense for it to be and um, that the design is responding to some of the unique needs that particularly barriered um, communities have. So, you know, making sure there's translation services, making sure that there's trauma-informed counseling connections and, and all of that stuff. Um, so the clinic will take some time to, to get up and going, but um, even before the clinic is up and running, people will see an immediate impact. More people will be financially eligible um, and there will be exclusion of these assets as well as making sure that people don't have to liquidate down to zero, um, you know, their RRSPs, RESPs, TFSAs, or if they have a registered disability savings plan or any of those kinds of things that are really there to set you up for the future. Well, it is certainly good news and a good outcome. Raji, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you for coming in on the show and thanks for talking more about this. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're, we're very excited and I know that... Uh, our clients at the Centre for Family Equity are also very, very excited.
Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, more than 250 naturopathic doctors in B.C. have responded to a call by the Naturopathic Doctors Association. And this is a call to help fight, join the fight against the drug crisis and to help by joining the B.C. Centre for Substance Use, being part of the Provincial Opioid Addiction Treatment Support Program. So what would this actually look like? Dr. Vanessa, Vanessa Lindsay is joining me now, president of the BC Naturopathic Doctors. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting us to speak with you and your audience. Well, it's such a, an interesting uh, uh, move and an interesting uh, invitation. What specifically are naturopathic doctors being asked to do as far as taking part in this? Well, as you and your listeners know, we are in the midst of a healthcare crisis on so many fronts. And there are many ways that naturopathic doctors can help with the current crisis. And this is simply one area that we know is especially in need of additional providers and support. And this is the way that we, we're proposing that we, we support these vulnerable populations. Um, there are over 700 naturopathic doctors across the province. And about one-third of households are seen by a naturopathic doctor. As we, you know, continue to see a lack of providers, we recognize that many, many patients are turning to NDs as their primary care provider, and we simply want to to be able to to support patients to the best of our capability and and meet them where their needs are. And when we're talking about naturopathic doctors in BC, I know it can be different depending on on what jurisdiction you're in. Are naturopathic doctors in BC also medical doctors? No, we are certainly not medical doctors. We are naturopathic doctors. We're regulated by the College of Naturopathic Physicians of British Columbia. And we, or the majority of us, over 600 of us, also have the capacity to prescribe provincially scheduled drugs. And we've been doing so safely since 2009. Okay, so what do you have to do as far as schooling to become a naturopathic doctor in BC? So once you've completed your undergraduate and required courses to apply to a naturopathic program, you then apply and you undergo four years of training at an accredited program. Um, these, these programs are accredited by the national uh, agency and you complete an internship with a, a set number of clinical hours, then undergo national licensing examinations, and then provincial board exams, which includes oral boards. All right. And, and when you talked about the, the number of doctors then, or naturopathic doctors that can, that can prescribe, do you have to do something else as far as training to be a, doc, a naturopathic doctor that can also prescribe? Yeah. So to gain prescription authority, so that is a particular um, certification through our college, you have to complete uh, additional training once you have got your naturopathic diploma, and that is an additional course with an additional examination. And that allows you, once you pass that, that allows you to prescribe off the provincial, the provincial drug schedules. Okay. And do you think that would make it to, or be more beneficial if you're a naturopathic doctor and you're taking part in this or you're, you're helping with the BC Centre for Substance Use to, to help with the opioid crisis? Would that be a benefit to have that power? So in, to be able to prescribe the opiate, opiate agonist and safer supply medications, well, it's one way in which we can support these patients. It does require additional um, training through the BC CSU. Um, you know, this 
condition, opiate use disorder, is a multifactorial condition, and these patients require a multifaceted approach that naturopathic doctors are well-poised to to work with and work with teams that are already supporting these these vulnerable populations. And so do you think, is there a push then to, to make all naturopathic doctors in BC be able to prescribe or to, to make it easier for that group to be able to prescribe? You know, I think we recognize, you know, as was the case with RNs and psych nurses, where there were you know, barriers that prevented them from providing additional support. Um, they were able to work with the ministry, thankfully, to overcome those barriers and, and and increase the number of prescribers. Not every nurse is a prescriber. We're really grateful to see, you know, a wide range of skill sets working with these patients. And what we're simply saying is that there are NDs who've expressed interest in working in that way as well, and we're looking forward to you know, to addressing some of those barriers and looking for unique solutions to this problem with uh, with the ministry and government. Uh, something you mentioned too that the, you're seeing more and more naturopathic doctors become primary care providers. Uh, are naturopathic doctors uh, has that been a, a real shift? Because it, the the number of people British Columbians who don't have a family doctor that number has been very high for years, and we hear from people all the time that don't have family doctors. But are you seeing more and more people uh, turn to a naturopathic doctor, and and they're they're getting they're, they're going about that because they simply can't get a family doctor. I certainly do see that. Um, you know, naturopathic medicine is a unique approach to healthcare that combines modern scientific knowledge with traditional forms of medicine. And here in BC, we function both as primary and complementary care, which allows us to manage acute and chronic conditions. In the recent years, I myself have seen a growing number of patients come into my clinic, into my office, and... I am supporting them in managing their health concerns, their diabetes, um, their cardiovascular concerns, working with them to appropriately monitor medications and, and labs. So I think that we are uniquely positioned to support patients who seek us out, and we, we are here to support in whatever way our patients require, require us to, to be there for them. Does it cause more stress or does it put more stress on naturopathic doctors that maybe people are now coming to to members of your organization with with health concerns that maybe they wouldn't have brought to a naturopathic doctor in the past but again uh, th- that that maybe uh, for for a number of reasons that doctor has become their primary care provider yeah i i think that's a, an interesting question you know one area that i see that especially is in, you know, screening and detection of, of cancers. So, for example, someone who comes in and has a skin lesion and, you know, there was a time when perhaps they would not have brought that up with their naturopathic doctor. And now the naturopathic doctor is the one who is face-to-face with them and they mention they've got a skin lesion and, and we are trained to assess and um, assess that condition where the the stress perhaps lies is that we are not then able to make it easy for them to access appropriate follow-up with a specialist, for example. So we would send them back to a walk-in clinic or uh, urgent care if they don't have a, a family doctor with perhaps a letter or with some communication that would 
then facilitate the referral through that 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 GP or that walk-in clinic um, because we, at this point, are not able to access specialist referrals. So I think where the stress is is in seeing patients go through additional steps to get appropriate and timely follow-up because the goal is, is, is good patient care. You know, we share that with all of our healthcare colleagues. Right. And and again, trying to, to make it seamless, I think. And like you said, who wants to, if you have a, a doctor or a naturopathic doctor that you're going to, then I mean, imagine the stress on the patient and the time that it takes if you mm-hmm. then have to go to another center or another ER doctor. Exactly. Who doesn't have the, the long-term relationship with you, perhaps, and, and it just adds to the stress on that patient, the anxiety around their health, which is already such a vulnerable space. And just going back to what you were talking about as well with with naturopathic doctors specifically being involved and uh, trying to help as the opioid crisis continues. Uh, so I understand that a number of naturopathic doctors have already started training and uh, training in the course with the, the BC Centre for Substance Use. How do you see that playing out as far as more naturopathic doctors doing that? And then what will they actually be doing in the community? Well, I think that it really depends on how how the I don't want to I don't want to speculate on how the health authorities would implement uh, a naturopathic doctor into their team based care. But what I what I'm really hopeful for and and really heartened to see is that the number of, of naturopathic doctors who are interested in working with this population is growing. Um, you know, we're, we're, we were at 30, we're now at 50, um, who've actually embarked and are, and are well into the training. And there's just a couple barriers that are preventing us from fully merging with the teams that are currently doing that work. And and I'm looking forward to constructive conversations around how we can provide some creative solutions to the current crisis. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday. Well, continuing with health news, but uh, some different health news. We're now talking about a new diabetes drug. It has shown the capability of reversing diabetes in rodents. At least that's what has been shown so far. And now it is ready to be trialed in humans. Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Tom Elliott, the medical director with BC Diabetes. Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Jill. Well, this, this, yes, it's, these are very, very exciting times. Absolutely. So what are we talking about specifically type 2 diabetes or what is this all about? Well, Jill, what's happened is a, a, a company in, in Redwood, California called Biomea Fusion has engineered a drug that's got a name. It's called BMF219. And it it makes the cells that that produce insulin called beta cells, it makes them grow. And it makes them grow in rats and mice. It makes them grow in people with type 2 diabetes in a a short study that's been completed. And now they have two clinical trials that that BC Diabetes is involved in that are testing whether it can make the beta cells grow back in in, in human diabetes. And if, if it can make the beta cells grow back, then 
it potentially means that diabetes can reverse, be reversed in humans as well. So that's, that's the outline. And, you know, it's, it's highly experimental. There's, there's no guarantees, of course. But we are looking for people with type 2 diabetes who've had it less than seven years who aren't taking insulin and people with type 1 diabetes who've had it less than 15 years. That's th- th- those, th- those are the kind of people we, we would love to hear from, Jill. Hmm. And, and when somebody, if somebody hears this and they're interested or, or is considering uh, taking part, what kind of things do you have to consider as far as what goes into being in a, a study like this and even, say, potential side effects? Uh, thank you. So the... Um, Apart from the, the what I mentioned, type 2 less than 7 years, not on insulin, they would have to be in generally good health. They, they couldn't be severely overweight. Um, they couldn't be on meds for ADD, that sort of thing. And um, in type 1 diabetes, they couldn't be on uh, sort of Vict- uh, uh, Ozempic and drugs like that. Um, in terms of the odds... In the type 2 diabetes study, they would have a 75% chance of getting the real thing and a 25% chance of getting a placebo. In the type 1 study, 100% of them would get the real thing. And in terms of side effects, um, nothing has been shown to date that about 100 humans have gotten this drug and, and some very minor abnormalities in liver enzymes have been shown, but nothing Nothing of concern. Hmm. And, and when you talk about the, the requirement, though, uh, that with type 2 diagnosed within the last seven years, not on insulin, type 1, um, not on things like Ozempic, are there a lot of people that would be in that scenario that you have either type 1 or type 2 di- diabetes and you're not, you're not getting those treatments or those, uh, those drugs? Oh, yeah. There, there are probably tens of thousands of people out there. Um, it's it, it is, and not everybody wants to do a clinical trial with a you know with a drug that really hasn't been used by a lot of humans. And um, you know we understand that this is not for everybody. But but anybody that's interested could contact our clinic, and we would uh, give them some more information. Uh, um, it does, Jill. It does. It does involve 12, 12 monthly visits. Each visit would be four hours you'd be hooked up to an IV. So, you know, it's a pretty big commitment, but but we do pay for, you know, time and travel and, and that sort of thing. Do they have to be in any specific part of the province? The the sponsor will, within reason, will fly them in hmm. for this study. So the, the sponsor is, is, uh, is covering covering those sorts of things. And when we talk about treatments for diabetes, you mentioned Ozempic, which I think is a drug a lot of people have heard about, maybe not because of its, because of what it does if you have diabetes, but more as a, a weight-controlled drug. But is it something, whereas this sounds like a pretty big breakthrough in a disease or a condition that has been around for a long time and so many people are living with it and, and dealing with it? Yeah, it, well, it, it, Jill, it's early days. If, 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 if this, once this study is complete, which, which it will be in, let's say, two years from now, if it's completed and it shows positive results, then it'll be an extremely big deal. Um, 
and that's you know that's part of the the, the fun and excitement of of for, for me running running a diabetes center where we have new and different treatments that we can offer patients and you know there's a chance it's not going to show benefit and 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 either way you know we're going to move on but but it's it's through clinical trials like this that we do get advances in in science and is that part of the trying to to encourage people to take part in this uh, aside from the time commitment to the the 12 monthly visits of 4 hours like you said 4 hours on an IV is that part of the having uh, to to kind of convince people that that I mean, if we didn't have people that took part in clinical trials, a lot of things wouldn't be discovered and there wouldn't be the research. So is that kind of part of the the argument as to to why people, if you're okay with doing this, why you should do this? Yeah, that's a really good point, Jill. Um, You know, a lot of people do clinical trials because they hope to get a benefit. And and there is a there is a good chance there'll be a benefit. Some people do clinical trials because they think they're going to get looked after better, and I sure hope that, 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 that we do look after people who do clinical trials. And there's a third category of people who are do-gooders. That they, you know, it's altruism. They're doing it because they, they want to, to give back. A lot of retired people do clinical trials, people with time on their hands. So there is a feel-good factor that, that you're contributing to, to scientific advancement. And, and when you mentioned, too, with uh, the people that are taking part in this of uh, for type 2, that there's, a, I think you said, a 25% chance that you would get the placebo. But for the type 1 diabetes uh, participants, it's a 100% chance that you're getting the actual treatment. How is that possible, given I always I thought they had to have a certain amount of people that were getting the placebo? Yeah, Jill, you're, you're so knowledgeable. So in the type 1 study, the first 40 will get open label. They all get the drug. Then once we've recruited 40, there is a study with 150 people of whom one third will get a placebo. So, yes, um, eventually people in this study will, will be subjected to the odds of getting a placebo. And you're right, without a placebo, you don't know whether if you get a good outcome and you don't have a placebo, you don't know whether it was just due to chance right? or whether it was due to the, due to the action of the drug. That's right. You, you know, in type 1 diabetes, Jill, it's a bit of a long shot. People, the, the, the current understanding is the cause of type 1 diabetes is that the beta cells have been destroyed by the immune system and that once they're destroyed, they're never coming back. But we now know that that some of the cells don't get destroyed. So they're hanging around. And if if this investigational drug, BMF219, does what we think it does, then it can potentially grow them back and help reduce their insulin requirement. And in our wildest dreams, of course, get them off insulin completely. Uh, Dr. Elliot, what should people do if they themselves are interested in learning more about this? Maybe they have a family member or a friend that they think might be interested. Where can they go to learn more? I recommend they send an email to questions at bcdiabetes.ca. They could also call the switchboard number, which is 604-683-3734. Questions at bcdiabetes.ca or that phone number 604-683-3734.
All right. Well, uh, Dr. Elliot, thank you so much uh, for doing this and for uh, uh, joining the show to talk more about this. Uh, Very exciting research indeed. Uh, Thank you so much, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Jill. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.